Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and fishing luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Bob Mallard. Bob is the former owner of Kennebec River Outfitters and is a registered Maine guide. He is a founding member and executive director of the Native Fish Coalition. Bob is a blogger, a writer, an author, and unique fly designer, and a native fish advocate. He's written for numerous sporting columns in both local and regional magazines and newspapers. He is also a prolific author and has published five highly regarded books on fly fishing. Bob is a passionate writer that has a reputation for conducting intensive research based on published scientific data rather than speculation. He is a fly designer for Catch Fly Fishing and is on the pro staff for Epic Fly Rods and Scientific Anglers. He drives the quintessential guide vehicle, the Toyota FJ Cruiser, and can often be spotted bouncing down the dirt roads of Maine in search of native fish in remote parts of the state. Bob enjoys fishing and guiding for native fish on remote streams and ponds in Maine and lives with his talented wife, Diana, in their home in Skowhegan, Maine. I am proud to have the opportunity to invite today's Flyline podcast guest, Bob Mallard. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thanks for having me, Michael. Yeah, Bob, it's a long, cold winter, and I can't think of a better project than to sit down with someone that's as knowledgeable as you are uh, about the state of Maine and the fly fishing history of it. Uh, let's get started way back. Tell us uh, how you first got into fly fishing. I know it's uh, deep in your veins, but tell us where the, the genesis came from. My grampy, uh, he was a, what they call, you know, the classic multi-sport, did everything, uh, fly fished, ice fished, spin fished, hunted, hunted upland game, ducks, deer, and uh, he had five boys of which the youngest was only a year older than me, so I just kind of blended in, and uh, and so it was really my grampy that got me into the whole outdoor thing, more so than any of his own children, and uh, there was a, we had a fly rod in the house, a couple of them, old glass rods, and we slapped them around the driveway, figured it out. But I was a spin and bait guy before I was a fly guy. And, and it just, in my teens, it just kind of became something I worked on. And then I got, you know, more and more proficient. And by my late teens, I was, uh, I won't say exclusively, but I was predominantly fly fishing. And uh, from there, I'm on the water 100 days a year, have been for decades, and uh, I'm pretty singularly focused. I don't do much else recreationally but fly fish. Right. That's, that's an awesome answer, Bob. I love hearing that about you, and I didn't know that. Uh, when was your first trip to Maine? How did you get inspired to start fishing in Maine? So in my early 20s, uh, while working in software, I was shopping at Coleman's Sporting Goods in Woburn, Massachusetts. And there was a gentleman, 10 years older than me, looked 20 years older, who uh, worked in the fly section, fly fi or the fishing section, but predominantly their fly section, which was pretty big for a, a sporting goods store. And as it turned out, he was a transplanted Mainer from Lewiston Auburn area who was down there for a woman, uh, a young lady he met um, skiing and uh, he was I think working at Sugarloaf or, and uh, so he was down there uh, and we became friends and fished local waters and then he uh, neither one of us had a four-wheel drive I had my at the time my last car he had a two-wheel drive old international pickup <laughs> and I went out bought a uh, Jeep Cherokee, 1976 Jeep Cherokee with uh, oversized tires and huge engine and and uh, kind of converted it to my first and and since then only uh, you know been my four-wheel drives since I was in my early 20s but so once I had that he said uh, we can we should go to Maine and he wanted to go to the place where his dad took him as a kid and he hadn't been in there in you know five years of whatever and so we went to uh, the 10,000 acre track uh, halfway between the west uh, the forks and Jackman and we went into Round Pond 
which was pretty well known at the time, and it was a, a really hard ride to get into, and a lot of water, alders, rocks, and so we landed on the shore of a round pond and set up a couple of pup tents in what little dry area there was and pulled out a couple of nine foot seven weight rods which were the trout rod of the day slapped the canoe off the roof and and folded a little table up and proceeded to fish something i had never seen never thought existed and at the time it was the finest brook trout pond that i've ever seen wild native brook trout pond yeah and it's funny how everything is circular bob how that was your first uh, experience in Maine and then of course you've done so much with all your travel and you know out west and around the world fly fishing and 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 river fishing focusing predominantly on moving water and now your your heart goes pitter-pat when you go to those remote ponds you know it was uh, back then there was you know people even in Massachusetts were somewhat still water focused um, places stocked trout waters uh, Walden Pond of Thoreau fame and so we were chucking bait on those ponds and doing some stocked rivers and stuff. And, and uh, but that, you know, was just something wild and new. And I was fascinated by the insect life, the big fish. Back then there were deer and moose and everything stumbling around the woods. And so that coincided with, um, with meeting a young man, uh, in the Medford Mass, whose family owned a camp in the White Mountains up in Carroll. And uh, so I was exposed to the small brook trout streams, wild brook trout streams. Uh, his family, his dad, his brothers, fished mostly the stock rivers, but it didn't take me long to get off the beaten path. So uh, kind of at the same time, I was discovering, you know, main ponds and, and streams and discovering the White Mountains and uh, very different. And it, uh, that was just kind of a, a launching pad. And uh, as you say, uh, after taking a somewhat of a sabbatical and buying one of the first drift boats in New England and probably the first raft with a rowing frame and traveling two or three times a year out to the Rocky Mountains and go to Labrador and on and on and on. Uh, I kind of circled back to Maine and uh, and even then my focus was as much on the Kennebec as anything else and now I'm absolutely back where I started. I fish almost exclusively ponds and small streams. Yeah, that's that's just wonderful, Bob. When you were at that time in your life, what was your career? You said software. I was a, a hard luck kid who got a GED diploma in Maine, walked in because a girlfriend's uh, mother wouldn't let me in the house until I had a high school diploma. And uh, I, that led to some testing. And for whatever reason, somebody decided that, uh, that I could do something that was not on my radar screen. And I went in and uh, took a series of aptitude tests and got immediately thrown into a, a computer software program, a programming course when, of course, nobody was in software. And that was paid for by the federal government under a Reagan-era program called CETA, C-E-T-A. And then I did a co-op with Honeywell and Bill Ricca, who hired me on the spot, and then uh, I got pirated out of there, and 20 or 15 years later or less, I was a uh, director of software development. I uh, was the uh, CIO for Boston Cellular One in the early stages of uh, cellular. I worked for a consulting firm out of Chicago, and then I went off on my own, and then I walked off the job at 42 years old, leaving a lot of money on the table and a lifestyle that you know, while it would be a dream for some, it wasn't my dream. And so that's how I ended up um, in Maine and, and making fishing, fly fishing, my career. Yes, before you moved to Maine, Bob, where, where did you call home? I was born and raised in Newton, Mass. I lived in, um, in uh, Medford briefly. I 
My first, uh, you know, escape from the suburbs was a town, a New Hampshire border town called Pepperell, Mass, with a couple of yeah. very well-known fisheries and a bunch of small streams. Uh, the Nissatissit River, Squanacook River, they're very popular. And then uh, from there, I bought my first house in Brookline, New Hampshire. So I kept moving north, and that was on uh, Lake Patanapo, which is the headwaters of the Nissatissit. And I had a small trout stream in my backyard. And then I moved to Skowhegan because um, I was flying weekly at the time. I didn't have a home base, and it really didn't matter where I lived. And, and I was also maintaining a trailer lease up on Ripagenus Lake that oh, yeah. was oh, yeah. a lot of time. And so I was as likely to be off on Rip Lake um, driving to Bangor at four in the morning to catch a plane um, as I was to be home. And uh, I picked Skowhegan because it was the last stop before the places that I fished most, uh, Kennebec and uh, the Forks area. And I figured uh, that I would open a fly shop at some point. I didn't anticipate running it. I was just going to open it and hire people to do it for me. And uh, so that was my northern migration. But even where I lived as a kid, Newton Mass was not the Newton Mass of today. I mean, we right. had a lot of ways. We had a lot of fishing, and I grew up in an outdoor family. Yeah, and when we when we first met Bob, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think the first time I ever met you was at Aardvark Outfitters, and you had New Hampshire plates on your vehicle, and you had the first clack of craft that I had seen. We had hides at that point. But you had the first Clackcraft, and you were actually quite influential in getting us to take a look at that brand, which uh, Bob and I ultimately uh, switched over to Clackcraft because we felt at the time and, and for many years following that it was a superior design. Um, I think you were probably the first guy with a Clackcraft in New England. I believe I was. At the time when I got my boat, which was long before I moved to Maine and showed up at Aardvark, um, Danny Legere had an old Michigan drifter, gray That's boat, had picked yeah. around a bit. There was a Lavro that had bounced around a bit in, um, over toward Dartmouth College, had been used in somebody in New Hampshire had it, then it went to Vermont. And then um, a gentleman out of like, the Pittsburgh area, a retired game warden, I forget, he had a wooden boat, I believe, and, and uh, Carol Ware had an old uh, metal tub, um, I think it was a, uh, might have been an old hide, and and uh, there was probably one more wooden boat kicking around Greenville, and that was it, uh, short of the Delaware. But I had traveled a lot out west, and of course they used drift boats like we use canoes. I had been in, fished out of, and paddled everything in the industry, and just felt that uh, clacks were a superior boat for several reasons. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think there's one name uh, that you missed on your list, and that would have been John McLeod. Yeah, he was the wooden boat I, was, I think I was talking about out of Greenville. Um, he was the, because I said there was one other boat kicking around. I do believe it was McLeod. Yeah, so he did. He had his, his, one of his boats was wooden, and then he actually got the same thing that Danny ended up buying, which is what you just said was Michigan what? Michigan Drifter, if I remember Yep, John had one of those, and he brought Danny down the East Outlet, and Danny went home that afternoon and got on the phone and ordered one. And yeah. uh, he, Danny's very quick to tell that story because he was just so enamored with the uh, what the what the capabilities of a drift boat were for a guide. And yeah. you know, obviously, you and I know all about that. But um, you know, speaking of going out west, Bob, one of the things that I very strong impression I had, and, and I think many people did who were in Maine at the time when you first started kind of really showing up on the rivers is you had skill sets from, you know, basically using Western techniques like nymphing and, uh, you know, fishing with strike indicators and fishing a lot of different fly patterns that were not common to me in fishing. Um, and you were, you know, it was quite obvious to everyone that you were catching more fish when other people weren't with traditional uh, approaches. Do you remember what that was like? I mean, going to the Roach River and just cleaning up with your, you know, using some different stuff? No, I read the of time was uh, at one time I was dating a woman out of Greenville and uh, I went up to the Roach which I had been fishing a lot at the time mostly out of my trailer up in Chesuncook 
And uh, back then, the standard was swinging uh, streamers. That's what most Mainers were doing up there. There was a couple of New Hampshire folks who fished it really hard at the time. And they did things like um, straight lining big stoneflies and buggers on a sink tip. And um, I remember stepping into the warden's pool with a pretty good crowd and nobody really doing anything. And I crossed the lower end of the pool and got across from everybody and started. And I put up, you know, like six fish in 15 minutes. And, uh, and people were, there was some people that actually got mad and left. Right. And yeah, and then some others, you know, cat called across as if somehow I was like mishandling fish or doing something wrong or snagging them, whatever. And there was one gentleman, when I came across, um, asked me who I was and, and uh, where I lived. And that led to a phone call a few days later where um, he was the outgoing director of Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, I believe, and, or prior director. And next thing I know, I'm on a conference call with George Smith and him asking, you know, how the hell I'm doing what I'm doing. And now I'm doing dumb fishing. I'm fishing for a little brook trout that, you know, will eat anything if I can put it where they are. So it's more about accuracy and, uh, and the willingness to get off the beaten trail. Yeah, and probably a desire to get a, have an escape because you're not standing at the warden's pool with eight guys and someone tapping their foot trying to get into your spot. Instead, you're going to some place where you and your partner might be completely alone. Yeah, I mean, I, I skipped the roach this fall for probably the first time in my life. I've got a couple of friends. It's an emotional thing. They go every year, and, and I bailed. And I said, it's just not my thing anymore. Yeah. And I... Uh, you know, as you say, where I fish on the streams, uh, I typically park, walk heads down, you know, half hour to an hour to an hour and 20 minutes and bushwhack down to a stream, fish till I'm tired, GPS back up to the trail. Wonderfully, the White Mountains, the, most of the trails are within easy shot of a, of a stream and, you know, three and a half, four hours on the water, I never see anybody. I mean, literally never. And uh, ponds are less fish today than they were when I was a kid. And uh, I'm not a, I don't like elbow to elbow fishing. No, I don't either. I can't stand it, a matter of fact. Uh, so, uh, what was your vision for Kennebec uh, River Outfitters, Bob? You, you actually, you had a lot of a, a talent, ability, vision, uh, experience uh, in other fly shops, and you, you saw that there was a niche in Maine that was missing. Um, yeah. Tell us how that all went for you in terms of your vision. Well, I had been floating the Delaware and some other big rivers and stuff in Pennsylvania, even Massachusetts to a degree, put the first drift boat on the Deerfield River that anybody had ever seen. And, uh, and I just, uh, I had learned to fish big fish out of the boat, and, uh, which was big streamers tucked tight to the banks. And I... Uh, and I saw the Kennebec, the middle Kennebec, as being the uh, premier highest potential fishery at the time in, in the New England. But, you know, we didn't have that Western shop. And mm -mm. so that was my goal was to build, you know, a Western-like shop. I said, I want a shop that would look, that would fit in in West Yellowstone, Montana. And you, and you ran a guide service out of the shop? Yes. Uh, I knew right away that there was a lot of pressure on me to get my guide license and from my clients. And, but I knew that the trap was that if I got my guide license, I would quickly become my own best guide. And I don't mean best as in skill, I mean best as in demand. So, because most of my clients came from out of state. And so what I did is I, the best way to tell your client you can't take them out is to not have a guide license. So I deliberately stayed out of it and I brought people in to do it. And I subbed stuff over to other shops where applicable and, and uh, you know, it, it worked. And then, you know, when I got rid of the shop, I said, now I can get a guide license because there's no conflict. But what happens in the shop 
is if I take that trip, my retail sales slide badly and I've got to pay somebody to be in there. And so I look at it at the end of the day and I say, you know, I, my retail sales suffered greatly. I paid somebody to be in the shop and uh, I'm out on the water and, you know, so it, it made financial sense to run my own shop. That's great, Bob. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I think we're at a pretty good spot here to take a, just a few minute break. And um, if you don't mind, we're going to come back and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about your writing. Okay. On this Flyline flashback, we are going to throw back to the 1940s to discuss an up-and-coming main author. Louise Dickinson Rich was a writer known for fiction and non-fiction works about New England rural living. While on a canoe trip with a girlfriend in Maine, she met Ralph Eugene Rich, a businessman who had recently returned to the land to serve as the new dam keeper for Lower Dam on the Rapid River. They married a year later and split seasons between the summer house, a lofty, uninsulated structure looming over the river, and the winter house, a small, dark cabin, more suited for burning wood and comfort through the hard Maine winters. Louise's first book, We Took to the Woods, was published in 1942 and became a national bestseller. It tells about her life with her husband and children in the wilds of western Maine. Stories, often filled with dry humor, of living off the land, bartering and trading for needed items, surviving rugged winters, encountering woodsmen on log drives, and the follies of remote living on the edge of the wilderness. The book became a regular on the reading list for Maine school classrooms, and Rich went on to write a total of 27 books. Louise will go down in history as one of the most prolific Maine women writers of the 20th century. And now let's return to the second part of our show. Well, we, we need to definitely cover a couple of more really important topics that uh, kind of create the shadow of who you are. Um, or I should say the light that shines from you, Bob. The light that shines from you. Um, no, seriously, uh, let's talk about your writing. Uh, tell me about your first book. How did, when did you decide that you were going to write, and what was that process like? When I came to Maine, uh, I had never, my wildest dreams, did I think I would be published for anything. And uh, so my first paid writing assignment, um, my first public writing, it was op-eds, believe it or not. It was letters to the editor. It was, yeah. it was asking, you know, what's going on on the Kennebec? You know, how are we crashing a river that, uh, a fishery, that was supporting five, you know, fly shops at the time? So it started with op-eds, and the bar is really low because they don't expect good writing. They just expect an opinion. Then it was uh, my first paid assignment was Paul Reynolds at the Northwood Sporting Journal. He asked me to do some tackle writing. So I did. You know, I, I you know, the next thing I know, I was doing some stuff for Harry and over at the Maine Sportsman. You know, New England fly fishermen, fly fishing New England, I think it was called at the time. They contacted me for Maine piece and, and then, you know, Eastern fly fishing. So all of a sudden, I was getting this weird uh, flurry of writing requests, Fly Fish America. Yeah. And fishermen. And so, you know, it was never a plan. It just was this organic thing where, you know, op eds morphed into le or letters morphed to the editor, morphed into op eds, op eds morphed into columns and art guest columns. And, and then, you know, next thing I know, I was writing a lot. And um, so my first foray into books, again, was an accident. I figured, okay, I, I'm apparently, uh, you know, qualified to punch out articles on topics I know a lot about and and but you know the idea of a book was like way outside my radar and Terry and Wendy Gunn of uh, Lee's Ferry Angler in Arizona they were working on a book called uh, 50 Best Tailwaters to Fly Fish. Stonefly Press was the up-and-coming fly fishing publisher at the time and they were changing the, the whole where to thing. They went to the large uh, high gloss format maps things like that and uh, they also started this model where the, quote, writer, author of the book was using uh, people from the industry and the angling community to contribute chapters. So they found me, and I'd never met Terry in my life, and, and asked me if I would write 
the Rapid River in Maine. Now I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of people who know more about the Rapid than I do. And, but, you know, and I said, you know, there are people who live there. And, and again, you know, it was one of these things where I said, you know, Bob, you, you, because you don't, you're not burdened by pride of place, we trust that you won't overdo it. And you have some name recognition at this time. So that was my first writing in book was contributing a chapter to the Guns Tailwater book. He said, this is very good, Bob. And I need somebody to write the Deerfield River in Mass. And I've heard that you were a Mass guy. And I heard that you ran the first drift boat down the, the Deerfield. So I contributed that chapter. So I ended up with two chapters in that book. And it had happened at a time when... Um, you know, my writing was, was my article writing was, was pretty visible. And then uh, the publisher and Terry came back to me and said, you know, we're working on these series and we're ready to, to do the Northeast and we'd like you to write it. And so, and it was done as a collaboration, recruit a bunch of people, write as many chapters as I want. So that was, I said, sure. And uh, it's a lot of work, a book, and it's not a lot of money. And it's kind of funny when when I first did that one. Here I am taking a guide, who Chris Thompson, Cash Haley, whoever, and I'm having them write a chapter in a book that's going to have national visibility. That's going to have their name in it, their picture. It's going to have their a short bio, links to their you know to their website, on and on. And I bumped into some issues in State College, Pennsylvania, only, you know, arguments as to who should have written which, not that it shouldn't have been written. And uh, so that was my, my second book. And, and I vowed never to do a collaboration again, because it's harder. Editing, you know, 40 people who've never written publicly or professionally in their lives, it's a lot of work. I could have written it myself way easier. I could have promoted only Bob Mallard in that book. It was it was up to me where I wanted to go. They said, this format works. You can go there or you can write the thing yourself. And I said, no, I think the right thing to do is to let pe involve as many people as I could, even people who weren't good to me. I involved and, uh, and I still do today. I have to admit, I think you're right, that at first glance, when someone introduces this idea that Bob is going to have a culmination of other people writing, it's something kind of inherent to our community in, in Maine, in the Maine fishing community, that there's jealousy and animosity. As an example, I've been down the East Outlet probably over a thousand times in a drift boat, and I, I take issue with the fact that you didn't ask me or Danny Legere to write that chapter on the East Outlet, but now... I have the book, and I read George Smith, Smith's description of it. No one could have written it better. Yeah, well, you know, the, there is one of the things is that, that book, which is also a, somewhat of a collaboration, that came seven years after my first collaboration, which was the Northeast book. You know, what I did is I went to the fly shops, and I chose Penn's Creek Angler, you know, whatever. Um, to write because that gives some level of credibility to people who don't know these areas or don't know these people. And But when I came out, I said, I'll never do it again. It was hard um, because you can't, you know, you've got to hold people to a certain number of um, words per chapter or else, you know, I got a, an eight page novel about one river and a, you know, 20 word snippet on another. Plus you have to um, do uh, a lot of editing because it can't look completely different, and fact-checking. So I came out of it and I said I'd never do that again. And then I wrote three solo books in a row. And then when I decided to go forward with the main book after starting and stopping five times over 20 years, I said, I'm going to go with that format again because it's the right thing to do it's the right thing to do for Maine. It's the right thing to do for people who make a living on our waters. And I did change the rules a bit because the more you write, the more success you have, the more leverage you have with publishers. And, and I didn't want the rigid count. I didn't want to say, you know, you got to do this within X number of words. So I let people write. 
I think your choices were really accurate. I just want to, you know, for the listener, um, Androscoggin River, you know, is the place I spent a ton of time. Uh, William Clooney, I mean, he is a guy. Yeah, you can hire William. But there's nobody that's probably written more about that part of the state than William Clooney has. Um, Kennebago River, Bob Romano. I mean, you couldn't he, – he's kind of like the, the Tom Brady of the Kennebago River, really. And then Brett Dam, who runs the uh, Ranger Regional Fly Shop, writing a chapter on the McGalloway River. I mean, I think your choices are spot on, Bob. You're there, there, you, you offered a product for the consumer. I mean, this, this is about promoting the state of Maine. And I wasn't convinced of what this book was until I bought it. It's a it's a gem. You just really hit the ball out of the park with this, and I think you got the right characters involved. You know, part of the the whole idea with this book was um, it wasn't, and I will never write a stand here cast in this book. It's never going to come out about Mallory. It's about you know I, I don't like the word they use now, but this experiential stuff. It's about telling people why. Why would you fish here instead of somewhere else? It's about bringing back history, geography, you know, biology, all of that's been removed from our, our fishing books to a point we've dumbed them down so much I find them hard to read. So that was the other thing. And, and I was in a place where I could do something for Maine that I, I don't believe that at least right now that anyone else could penetrate the market outside of Maine. There are a number of people who do better inside Maine promoting this book, but outside Maine, we don't need intrastate promotion. That doesn't help. That doesn't put people in guideboats. It doesn't put people in hotels. It doesn't sell out, you know, non-resident licenses. And I'm in a unique position because of my writing, NFC, other stuff, to, to really reach out way beyond our own borders to people who can help us in a lot of different ways. Uh, non-resident licenses, twice as much money. So, Bob, I think I think that we can both agree, and I know that we'll both agree, that what ends up happening if, if we don't promote places that are viable other than just the, the real obvious hot spots, uh, is the, the, the state gets loved to death, as an example, mailbox pool on the McGalloway River. Uh, Rachel Lakes Heritage Trust set up a, uh, a, a counter to count the number of times someone walks down the path to Mailbox Pool on the McGalloway River. As of um, late September, 2,600 people walked to fish in one pool. That, that's loving it to death, man. That's not good. No. And I mean, you know, what you'll get if you write at all in the state of Maine more than anywhere else I've written, you get this spot burning. People get Mainers get mad. You're burning spot burning. And the McGalloway, the Rapid, they've been written about so many damn times yeah, by too Mainers. Much. By, too much. You know, that, too much. Yeah, I'm not adding anything, you know, necessarily to that. Uh, the one thing is when I talk about the Rapid, I'm talking about bass and how they're bad for the fishery. But if we look at what we now call love to death, and, I, and it is happening, it's the, it's the rapid, it's the McGalloway, it's the Roach, and it's Grand Lake Stream, and it's the East Outlet. And you know, East those Outlet, are the ones yeah. that are clobbered. Yeah. And that was, we were doing a much better job of spreading angler traffic around. 25 years ago or 40 years ago, I've been, I've actually lived in Maine now 25 years, uh, than we are today. And part of that problem was, is that when we crashed, and no one can deny that we've crashed, they can get emotional, they can get mad, but they can't deny that we crashed the Kennebec and we crashed the Androscoggin trout fisheries. That displaced hundreds of anglers. You know, the typical Saturday at Shawmut Dam alone, it wasn't unusual to see 25, 30, even 40 anglers. Yes. You could drive up the you know, to Waterville and there was another 20. You could go to Skowhegan and there was a half a dozen or four to six people in the eddy. You go to Madison, there was another 20, 30. You go to Solon and there was, you know, six drift boats on the water. You go to Bingham, you know, and on, just on and on. So... The damage we did to these fisheries that we now say are being loved to death, it's on us. We did that. We ruined the Kennebec. 
And when I say ruined, I fish the Kennebec. It's my home water. I still go down there. I don't run my drift boat in Solon often, but I wade Madison. I don't fish Scalvegan at all. I don't go to Shawmut. You know, I pick my times at Bingham, but take that and then take the sheepskin and then take, you know, the Andro, uh, yep. Bingham, uh, sorry, um, the Gilead stretch. And these people didn't quit fishing. They just moved. Yeah. And nothing put more pressure on Rangeley than the loss of the Androscoggin fishery. And this is that's the role that these glamour fisheries can play. They can take pressure off of, you know, wild native delicate fisheries. They can be um, economic drivers. Uh, the Kennebec, as you know, you know, if you include Aardvark, there were five shops making a living off the Kennebec yeah. and, and guides and stores and hotels and campgrounds. And the only reason that I don't guide trout as much as I used to is because it's not there for me anymore. It's underwhelming. And this is a problem. And when I say that, people bristle. I had a guy get in my face in Madison a couple years ago about, you know, my negative comments about the river. And I looked down and I said, what, what am I seeing? A half mile or more river? Um, it's just you and I standing here. I said, are you shitting me? Um, I said, look at this resource. Um, it, it's so underused, and it's underused because it's not that good. And the same thing happened to Solon. I, I really struggle to haul my boat. I put my boat on Solon, you know, twice in the last three years. And and there was a time when I put my boat on Solon 30, you know, 40 times a year. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and we, we did go down the section last year, you and I and Solon, and we, we had a nice day. I mean, we did, we caught some browns, and um, the fishing was good. But it certainly, I mean, it, it has been better, right? And it's been a lot better. It's not just a little bit better. Um, let's talk about George Smith, if you don't mind. And then I'd like to also talk about Native Fish Coalition a little bit. And I think our hour will be about up by then. If we, if we could talk about George Smith, I just know that he, he's, he's a special person to a lot of people in Maine. Um, there's a lot of people that, that misunderstood George. I think George did a lot to make himself misunderstood. And, um, but he was in, he was inspirational to you, Bob, wasn't he? Yes, I I was, uh, it was an interesting relationship to say the least. Uh, you know, uh, George and I, as I said, we met over this this nymphing the Roach River thing. And um, we fished together. He came up, I put him in the drift boat and sold him. We spent a day on the water. And he, uh, and I had the same opinion of George Smith as most people. I was not a big fan of some of his positions. I didn't necessarily like, you know, what Sam was doing. Um, and I, you know, I corrected him right out of the gate. He made that, that you know, a reference to antes. And I said, not in my boat. That's not how I play. And I said, you know, let's not call people names. Let's start there. But midway, midpoint in the day, he said, I'd like you to join our fishing initiative committee, Sam's fishing initiative committee, which at the time was like an all-star team. It was... It was Harry Vanderweed, Dennis Smith, Greg Pont, Gary mm-hmm. Corson, Courtney, on and on and on. And I said, I'll be honest with you, I have no interest in working with Sportsman's Alliance of Maine. It's not my thing. And um, and he said, why? And I said, because I um, disagree with a lot of things you stand for. And he said, but you agree on wild native fish? And I said, absolutely. He said, so why don't we focus on what we agree on and not worry about what we don't? And so. That was the first time I knew George was different. I said, you know, this guy is not what I thought. The other thing is when I was cleaning my boat out at the end of the day, there was a little Ziploc bag and a cup holder. Every snippet of tippet, every button fly was in this bag. And uh, so, you know, that led to a, a, a very odd relationship. I mean, George Smith certainly had closer friends than, than he and I, but we talked very regularly. And we worked on several projects together, important projects, state heritage fish law with Sam, regulation simplification, um, remote ponds. After Sam, you know, I was his primary support for the what's now the North Zone um, um, live bait restriction. George was not a detailed guy, 
but no one worked the legislature better than George Smith. So what I brought to George was a, an IT background and, and an ability to collect and disseminate information and data and research. And so it was a good relationship. And I, I tell people, I don't, I'm not sure, you know, very few people have done more for Maine's outdoor scene than George. And uh, that's why the book is dedicated to him. It's why he wrote the foreword. Um, when I talked to him about the book, he said, this is a very good idea, Bob. The timing's right. You're the right person to do it. And I said, you know, um, would you write the foreword? And he, you know, kind of hemmed and hawed. And I said, well, George, like, who else should write this? No one. And he agreed. And then he wanted to write a chapter. And, you know, it was a sad thing to yeah. be pushing that book to the publisher as George is going down for the count. And when it finally, you know, we were deep into manuscript work um, and George had passed away, I reached out to his family and said, listen, I don't know if you even know who I am. I said, but here's where I'm at. And I, I'm not comfortable pushing forward as planned without your blessing and permission. And, and you know, they said, of course we know who you are, Bob. George spoke very highly of you. And, and you know, the next thing I know, they said, you know, send us what you have. I sent it and, you know, the support was phenomenal. Gordon, his brother, Edie, his um, sister, and Linda, his wife. Yeah. Uh, they all said, go forward. I recently, when the book came out, I drove a couple of signed, or sent a couple of signed copies to Edie, who shared it around at Christmas, and then said, I need five more. You know, the family all wants these things. And I drove to Herman, Maine, and, and delivered another five to Edie. And, but, you know. Yeah, no, was, this, the Smiths were, were great people. I mean, I grew up in Mount Vernon with George, and, he and my father served on the selectmen's committee for my entire life, and Linda was, you know, just still is a wonderful human being. And George's loss is going to leave a deep hole in our in their, our community that'll take a long time to ever fill. Not just the Mount Vernon community, but the fishing community. And um, you know, the thing about George which was so interesting to me, Bob, is that if you met him in person, he was an infectious person. He was a, I mean, you just, you just loved him. But when I would read his, uh, his op-eds or his articles, uh, it felt like his agenda was just very different than what I thought. And we actually got into an argument, you know, we were raising our voices uh, outside in the hallway at a legislative committee one day over fish stocking. And all of a sudden he's, you know, he's kind of just probably did the same thing that he did, he did with you a few times and that just said, hey, look, let's let's agree on what we agree on, Mike. I understand you have English setters. Can we go hunting sometime? And I just thought it was so disarming, you know. I said, okay, yeah, yeah. So he came up to Greenville, and he and I spent a day uh, bird hunting over my dogs. And I was in love with him by the end of the day. He was like a friend again. And, and, and that's why my father and he were always friends is despite their differences, um, George was a good man. He was a charming man. He, uh, My wife loved him. And the last time we floated together, he was already in trouble. And uh, and the funny thing is, uh, you know, I'm rowing, soloing. I got, you know, George in front of me, Diana behind me, and all they did all day was yak, yak the way to each other, like hardly cast. And and I and I'm sitting there. Could somebody please put a rod in the water? You know, can we like try to get a fish? And uh, all and all George kept saying was. Next time, we should leave him home. He's getting awful whiny. And, you know, the two of them just bantered all day. And, uh, and you know, it was just the kind of thing. My wife kept a, a thing on our refrigerator for years that said, my man George, with a picture of George on it. And, uh, and you know, it's he was a, a nice man. He was a very likable guy. And, you know, the Hellfire and Brimstone, you know, Sportsman's Alliance, a main George, it was a different person, and we saw it when he left Sam. He he absolutely stopped defending stuff that he didn't personally do. When he was with Sam, he did what Sam wanted when he was there. But but I would tell you the single most defining moment in George Smith. We were all in Orono at the college at the big civic center, or whatever, and and uh, the National Park Service was there talking about Katahdin Woods and Water. And I'm in the group ready to 
crowd, I'm one of the people who's going to stand up and I'm going to defend the idea of a, of a national monument or national park. And I know I'm going to get my ass handed to me. And some people really disappointed me, stood up in favor of this, what I think is a, a terribly flawed state model, which requires multiple use and logging and stuff. And so, and it was interesting because Baxter is more restrict, more strict than any national park I've ever been in. So really uh, what, what drew us all is when it came George's time to stand and I'm going to be behind him and I'm thinking coming in clean up after George is not going to be easy. And he shuffled, he looked down and he went for 10 minutes about how he supported that proposal and how he personally liked Roxanne Quimby. And when he was done, I just looked at the people I was with and I said, I'm not even going to stand up. I, I don't have to. George just basically pushed this thing over the goal line. And, hold, uh, hold for applause, right? I mean, that, yeah. that's, that, that kind of defines the, how, what George turned into in his late, uh, later in life is. I mean, he actually saw the light because there's nothing wrong with Roxanne Quimby. She's, she's doing nothing different than, you know, Percival Blackster did, right? Am I, yeah. Bob? It's nothing, nothing different. And George and I, we had a big blow up over his band rocks and sticker. He pulled into the parking lot at the shop and I said, move your truck, put it across the road. I don't want it in my parking lot. And I, again, I said, this is, you know, a, a woman who's trying to give us, you know, 80,000 acres of land. I said, are you kidding me? You're going to vilify this poor woman. And I've met her and she's a nice lady. And, uh, you know, I say we were a much better group of human beings in Percival's day than we are today um, because she's doing nothing. In fact, Katahdin Woods and Water is less restrictive than Baxter. And um, and she gave, you know, $13 million to run it. She's got chunks of land going over to uh, Acadia. She just grabbed a chunk of land and gave it back to the Penobscots. I mean, come on now. It's right. like, really? Um, if I had that land or if you had that land, would we be as generous as Roxanne Quimby? No way. Uh, well, Bob, we, we've got to talk about Native Fish Coalition. No conversation uh, is complete with Bob Mallard without discussing that because that's really your big, uh, that's your big beacon right now. How did, the, how did the Native Fish Coalition come about? What was the first, first step? Uh, I had dropped out of the game um, pretty notably and uh, without a lot of fanfare. I just was tired of the of lack of support. I was tired of reading about myself on the internet or hearing about myself. And I just said, you know what, I'm done. I've done what I can. I've tried. I've tried to, you know, keep the back from going down the toilet. I've tried, you know, to keep our brooks out here, but I'm done. I said, I'm not going to be the lone voice in the woods. And uh, I quit everything. And uh, like when I quit uh, Sportsman's Alliance of Maine's Fishing Initi Initiative Committee, it wasn't received well. Harry, Gary, and some others were like, you know, how, you know, who are you to just walk away? And I said, I'm, I'm walking away. And, uh, and I did. I went pretty darn quiet for a couple of years there. And uh, the first chink in the armor was Bill Townsend, a wonderful man, done more for Maine than most people. Mm -hmm. He's a top three Mainer as far as conservation. And, and Bill was a regular customer. He, he came in and said, do you mind locking the door and putting the clothes sign up? And I said, yeah, I'm thinking, what the hell does he want? And he just said, it's time, Bob, get back in the saddle. He says, I get it. You beat up, you burnt out, you burnt yourself out. And he said, but, but you need to get back in. And I said, but it's not well received. And, and he said, uh, it's never well received. He said, anybody who bucks the trend, challenges the status quo, gets the crap knocked on them. And he said, but you're tougher than that. So that was the first. And then I was talking to George. And George said, you know, Bob, um, you, you need to get back in. We, we need more help. And I said, George... I said, I'm tired of the hate mail, you know. And George said, Bob, I get hate mail from old ladies. And he said, again, stop your whining. And I was like, all right. So I supported George's, um, this idea. He and I had this, this the, it was two bills. One was to in, 
was to expand the protections for the state area fish waters to their tributaries. Like, what a no-brainer. If we're going to disallow live bait on these waters because it's dangerous, how on earth can we justify allowing it on the tributaries? And uh, so the thing is that that law was passed. IFNW had 10 years to address the loopholes. They chose not to. And once again, you know, George was heading the legislature because they weren't going to do it. And I wanted to get um, the criteria for adding waters aligned with the criteria we used for putting the waters on. At some sleight of hand during the legislature, while the while the rules for, ad, for the original list were clear, not stocked or not stocked in 25 years, somehow in some backroom dealing, the rules for adding waters said um, the commissioner may add waters um, using criteria um, that they define. So the whole thing, you know, they just stopped adding waters. And so that was a start. And we went in and... Um, my part of it got killed right away. Audubon waffled on it. TU was kind of non-support. I won't say against it, but they certainly didn't support it. Audubon actually um, rolled over on us. I was stunned that they would have, you know, and Bob, I'm sure it was W pressure. Bob, just for clarification, what were you, what was specifically were you asking for that they were giving you pushback on? It was the... We simply wanted the verbiage in the law specific to adding new waters to the heritage list to mimic that that was used to establish the list. That's all I wanted. And there was obviously pressure. The part of it that was to expand the um, protections, though the, the no stocking and no live fishes bait to the tributaries, there were some things that George didn't understand, like tributary has a legal meaning in Maine, mm -hmm. and it is inlets only. It's not outlets. So I said, we got some technicalities we're going to need to work around. But with that said, I said, let's throw this thing up and see what happens. George was no longer with Sam. I wasn't affiliated with anybody. Emily Bastian joined us as a third person. And while we didn't get a law passed, they um, held the bill over acknowledged that it was a gaping hole and told IFNW to fix it. Put a working group together and fix it. Come back in a year with a plan to address this problem. And the working group, of which I was not invited to participate, uh, they went off and, you know, long story short, they came back with nothing. Then they finally, they got sent back to do it again. But so I was on my way home from the hearing. And my cell phone rings, a Washington, D.C. number, nobody I knew, and a young gentleman from Maine, born and raised in Maine. Um, uh, he said, all my, my family's never been anywhere else. He's a hot shot for uh, the Republican National Convention, a consultant. And he said, I just listened to this podcast. And he said, and I'm ashamed um, of my state that those two amendments didn't pass. And he said, I was, I'm angry that people didn't support him. And he admitted to not being a huge George Smith fan. And he said, he knew who I was. And, and he said, you need to get organized. He said, Sportsman's Alliance of Maine, post-George, is out of the game. They are no longer a voice for wild native fish. That was George. And he said, you know, TU is more into, you know, kids camps and stuff and outreach and and he said, we need a group, kind of like the old Duddeners that I was part of. Uh, and he offered money, uh, legal papers, incorporation, help with a logo, build a website if I was willing to get back in the saddle. So it wasn't my idea. And it was born in Maine by Mainers. And, uh, and I, I was reluctant because I said, listen, I'm, I'm not sure I want to get back into the, you know, lion's den. And so I agreed to do it. And I brought in Emily, George, Ted Williams. And I said, we're just going to kind of do the Dud Dean thing. We're going to at least make sure that there's a group of the legislature that represents wild native fish, period. 
I don't care if it's 10 people or 10,000 people, we're going to do it. So that's how it started. And Ted was actually the first, or this young gentleman who helped us start, he was our first executive director. Ted Williams was the, um, was the national chair because he had a lot of name recognition and contacts. And I was the executive, oh, sorry, the national vice chair, and Emily Bastian was the main chair. And so it was kind of how it rolled out. And then, you know, Tom uh, stepped back because of his Washington, D.C. work and continues to support us. And, and then, um, you know, I moved in and then we kind of all moved up. But, but what happened, total surprise, was all of a sudden, you know, we had interest in New Hampshire, Vermont, Mass, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. Um, long story short, we're in 15 states right now, from Maine to Alabama. We've got money in the bank. We've uh, we have influence. Um, we are um, bringing up two more chapters as we speak. We're probably heading to the Great Lakes next. Um, the native fish message has never been stronger in my life. Uh, the media is supporting it. The industry is supporting it, and we are finally seeing a change in focus. And I think part of it, you know, it's in it's really weird that this whole thing is in some ways really difficult in Maine, in other ways really easy in Maine. The easy part in Maine is Mainers love brook trout. They don't care about brown trout and rainbow trout, and they don't want them to go away any more than I want them to go away. We just disagree on what has to happen to prevent them from going away. And that's a matter of education and, and experience. The other thing I'm seeing is people who thought I was an alarmist 20 years ago have now lost their favorite water. And when you lose your favorite water, you're a changed person because you're like, okay, it happens. It just happened to me. So that's changing. You know, what's tough in Maine is, is as far as sportsmen go, we're a pretty consumptive lot. And uh, we're more likely to be bait fishermen, notably more likely to be bait fishermen and harvesters than the Western guy. I mean, I've spent countless days out West. I've never seen anybody string or a trout, never. And I don't see bait fishing and spin fishing, and, and I'm not knocking them. It's not a social issue. It's never been a social issue. It's an impact issue, you know, treble hooks and bait, you know, 30% incidental mortality. That's a tough, you know, thing to accept when we're talking about wild native fish. If, if it was me, every stock fishery in Maine would be open to whatever the heck you wanted to use. I don't care. So that's how we started, and it's outgrown me. It's outgrown any of us. It has momentum. For the first time in my life, when I get an email, I got to look at a list and see if I'm talking to a NFC or a stranger. Yeah. Yeah. You've done a great job. I mean, I've, 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 I like to contribute to it. I think it's a great cause. Uh, you and Emily both are do. you know, you're waving the flag hard and, and you're, and you're not, what I like about it, Bob, is I think you might have found a good place for you because, you know, as you've, you've alluded to in our conversation today, you found yourself in some prickly spots, um, you know, running a fly shop, dealing with biologists, going into legislative meetings. No one can argue about preserving native brook trout. And that's, that's no one can argue that with you. And, and so for that reason, I think it's very disarming and, and actually in some ways it's very reflective reflective because now when I look at the work you're doing it says to me well let's like look back at some of the other things that you've done and I'm starting to pick up you know some of your other books and read some of your writing and starting to realize that over the years that uh, I think you've been largely misunderstood and I think it's really great that you had the opportunity to join us today and um, you know you have a very strong uh, speaking voice and your message has always been it always resonates whether people like it or not they hear it um, and then there's a, an old saying Bob Dion used to say is, you know, listen to me now, hear me later. So you would just wonder if they were listening or hearing. But in my point is today, I'm hearing you loud and clear, and I, I really like uh, having you in my life, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Likewise, Mike. You know, it's a, it's a small group that's going to have to drive a big truck and more people that are on board. And no, and for that reason, Bob, I, I have to say thank you because I mean, you, you and Emily are, and really the whole the whole group of NFC NFC are just really, really doing a great job for something that doesn't have does, it can't advocate the, the brook trout can't advocate for themselves, and not just brook trout, any native fish. I mean, that's the other thing that people need to understand about NFC is, um, you know, red eye smallmouth bass in Alabama. Am I right? Is that 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, NFC is not just about trout. It's about any native fish and protecting where they are. I'm convinced, Bob, that we could talk all day because you have so much to add and share. And I just encourage anybody, in, uh, in, you know, I encourage our audience to buy Bob's books. I encourage the audience to do a little more research about who Bob is because he's, he's leaving a very large footprint in um, contemporary Maine fly fishing. And, uh, Bob, thank you. We're, we're, we really appreciate you joining the podcast. And thank you for taking the time out of your day to, uh, to share some experiences with us. Thanks for having me. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion, and thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. Flyline Podcast is a product of Riverside FM. Riverside FM.